Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Hello, Ken. How are you this week? I'm great, Josh. How are you? Good. Uh, You know who doesn't seem to be having a great week? Well, the list is long, Josh, (laughs) but I suspect you may, because of our interests, be talking about uh, Trump attorney Christina Bob. I am. I'm talking about Trump attorney Christina Bob, although it sounds like in addition to not having a great week, she may be causing some other Trump attorneys to also not be having a great week. Uh, Mark Caputo at NBC News uh, reports that Christina Bob, who's one of Trump's attorneys, she's the one who's a former anchor on One America News Network, and she signed a statement back in the spring saying that Trump was in compliance with a grand jury subpoena and that he no longer had in possession a host of documents with classification markings uh, at his Mar-a-Lago club in Florida. Now, of course, that statement turned out not to be true, as we all know, because the FBI went on to raid Mar-a-Lago and find more than 100 additional documents with classification markings. Uh, And what Mark Caputo reports for NBC News is that Christina Bob has spoken with federal investigators about how she came to sign that statement. Uh, And she says, uh, and she apparently said a couple of interesting things uh, to federal investigators, according to that Mark Caputo story, which cites three sources familiar with the matter. Uh, One of the things the story says is that that she repeatedly insisted that they add a caveat to the document to say, based upon the information that has been provided to me, uh, there are no more responsive documents left at Mar-a-Lago, basically trying to push off the responsibility for whether or not the statement is really true, just saying she's been told there are no more responsive documents. And that she also told federal investigators that another Trump attorney, Evan Corcoran, drafted the statement for her to sign, that she did not draft the statement herself. And so I, I guess, Ken, first of all, whenever I look at a story like this with anonymous sources about what investigators are determining... If the story is true, generally the statements can come from either side. It could be leaks from the federal government, or it could be statements that came from Christina Bob's side of the situation. Do you have a sense reading the story of how we're coming to know about Christina Bob's dealings with the federal government? It's all um, guesswork, but the types of statements coming out and the way it's attempting to portray her seems consistent with someone from her side. And that doesn't necessarily mean Trump's side. It means people specifically interested in her welfare in trying to carve her out from this sort of uh, ball of criminality and and foolishness that is what the Trump team was doing during this process. It, it really seems like it's it's trying to put her in the best light possible as someone you know, who didn't knowingly lie. Although I would point out it's not really getting all the way there. Yeah, I mean, I would just note, I mean, for example, one of those statements that I think you're referencing is a, a source saying to NBC News, she is not criminally liable. She is not going to be charged. She is not pointing fingers. She is simply a witness for the truth. That doesn't really sound like a Fed talking. No, and it certainly doesn't sound like Trump talking. Um, <laughs> so I do think it sounds like it comes from her camp. I mean, here's the thing. You, you don't sign as an attorney things under penalty of perjury for your client unless you can personally verify they're true under penalty of perjury. Now, it's not a crime to make an accidental false statement in a declaration. So if she genuinely thought and believed that all the documents had been turned over, then that wouldn't be perjury to, to say that under penalty of perjury. But when you go around demanding that people add you know, additional <laughs> language based on the information that's been provided to me, 
that kind of suggests two things. One is that you might know that the information isn't right. You might be engaging in, in what's called willful blindness, deliberately looking away from whether or not it's right. And that is a real risk. The other people who are in the soup on this include Evan Corcoran, because if he's the one who is drafting this and the language for her and directing her to sign it and he knows it's false, then he's on the hook for potential criminal charges as well. So this seems like someone who exercised bad judgment at the time in signing a document, some ambiguity about how clearly they knew it was false, and now is trying to extricate themselves from the situation, not showing the best judgment in doing so. Christina Bob was at the time the custodian of records for Donald Trump, overseeing all of these uh, records that were at issue at Mar-a-Lago. What does it mean to be a custodian of records? Uh, you know, a custodian of records is just a term for somebody who is going to be the face of the process for getting documents from an entity or organization or business. So you, you can't haul um, AT&T into court. You can't bring the, the articles of incorporation and sit them in a chair. You have to have someone who is the face of the entity to be the one responsible for producing documents. It's not possible to have high level people do that for important entities because they'd be doing it all day, every day, signing off on here's the documents you asked for. So in any given case, you might have different custodians of record. Often they're low level clerical people, sometimes they're lawyers, sometimes they're even executives, uh, but it really depends on the situation. But does it create an obligation to actually know something about the records? I mean, if you're if you're just some random employee at Mar-a-Lago and someone asks you, are there classified records here? And you say, gee, I don't think so, then, you know, you may not, you don't have any legal obligation to be more informed than that. But if you're the custodian of records, are you supposed to know whether or not there are marked classified documents at Mar-a-Lago when the government asks you? So usually a custodian of records isn't engaged in, in this type of representation. Okay, usually what they're saying is that we search for the documents, here they are, or we search for the documents and we didn't find any. And they put in some extra stuff about knowing the entity's record keeping. And the real reason for all this, Josh, is to create a foundation for an exception to the hearsay rule that lets you get business records into evidence without necessarily having a, you know, someone who wrote the document there. And to do that, you have to have somebody who's familiar with the record keeping practice of the business and can say these were kept in um, a location of the business and so forth. Usually they're not commenting on sort of evidentiary or historical facts about what's happened in the case. So this is kind of a little beyond what would normally be done for a true custodian of records. This is a lawyer talking more about the course of compliance with demands in the past in the case. There's also a story in the New York Times actually came out while we were taping this episode uh, that has some of the same information that's in the NBC story about Christina Bob taking this meeting with federal investigators and sort of laying out how, you know, she she was roped into this thing. And to the best of her knowledge, she signed this thing and she insisted on that caveat. The New York Times also adds, uh, it says, Ms. Bob has made clear she's not taking an adversarial position toward Mr. Trump in answering the Justice Department's question. She told investigators that before she signed the attestation, she heard Mr. Trump tell Mr. Corcoran they should cooperate with the Justice Department to give prosecutors what they wanted. 
an assurance that would come to ring hollow as the investigation proceeded and became a bitter court fight. So the interesting thing here, I mean, I think from both these stories, we can take the context clue that this is Christina Bob and people around her trying to get the word out there that, you know, if anything illegal happened here, it definitely wasn't her fault. And yet also she is not flipping on Donald Trump here. Is it wise for her to try to litigate this in the court of public opinion like that? I mean, for one thing, you know, if one of the reasons she's concerned here is that she could be should be she could become a criminal defendant in this case. I don't know about the extent to which you want to get your story or multiple stories out there in the press about you. It is not wise, uh, Josh. It's a prime example of the phenomenon that you and I have been chatting about for what is it, four or five years now, which is the tug of war between what's good PR and what's good legal strategy. It's terrible legal strategy to get more statements out there because those statements lock you in. They may be inconsistent. They give the government information it may not have. Uh, the government's definitely looking at her. I would suspect she's at least a subject of a federal criminal investigation, might even be a target. And to be talking more than is necessary is just dumb. I don't know the circumstances under which she talked to investigators. If she did it without a uh, use immunity agreement, a so far queen for a day agreement for the discussion with them, then that was dumb. She should absolutely be looking out for her own neck here. And sooner or later- The NBC uh, story you know, said she did not have any sort of immunity agreement. I don't know whether that's true, but that's what that's what the story says. Well, if that's true, then it's dumb. Um, <laughs> you know, loyalty is nice, but loyalty to Trump does not tend to be reciprocated. And, uh, you know, she, she needs to look out for number one here and try to keep her neck out of the news. But I mean, speaking to investigators, in addition to being potentially politically hazardous to herself, is not really an exp expression of loyalty to Donald Trump either. I mean, presumably the best thing for both his and her Legal, I mean, unless she had an, an immunity agreement, in which case, you know, then that could be her speaking to the investigators I, could be wise, even though putting it out in the press is not. If she didn't have an, ag uh, an agreement for immunity, presumably her speaking to investigators is bad both for her and for Donald Trump. Well, yes, but that doesn't preclude the possibility that Trump knew and encouraged her to go talk to investigators because Team Trump routinely does really stupid things and <laughs> uh, gets his people to do things that might be good PR but are terrible legal strategy. So saying, oh, yeah, just go tell them this would be perfectly consistent with past Trump strategy towards pending investigations. One of the themes that we're seeing communicated through these stories is that basically Christina Bob got pushed into doing this by other attorneys on the Trump team, that Evan Corcoran and Boris Epstein arranged for her to go make this attestation when it was necessary for somebody to make it. Uh, one thing they say in the Times story is that uh, she looked before leaping because she was being asked to take a step that neither Mr. Trump nor other members of the legal team were willing to take. I mean, so presumably one of the objectives of her getting this information out here or people around her getting this information out here would be to shift blame toward other members of the Trump legal team for whatever happened here. These people are all in theory supposed to be working together for Donald Trump's legal interests. He's not a criminal defendant yet, but uh, this looks like a, a preparation for a criminal case that could be brought against him. Many of these people are involved in one way or another in the civil litigation that Trump has, has brought trying to obtain the return of documents and slow down the, the Justice Department's review of documents that were seized from Mar-a-Lago. How can these people work together 
in this situation where they're clearly concerned about whether they themselves may have legal liability um, and where we're at least starting to see a certain amount of infighting in the press. I mean, we also, on, on a you know a less momentous matter, we talked last week about these news reports saying Chris Keis, the, the high-profile Florida lawyer who got the $3 million fee deposit, saying that he'd been shoved aside on uh, this litigation, and then him coming back and saying, that's not true, I'm still here. He signed a filing that came out after we had those news reports. So it's clear these lawyers are, you know, they're theoretically on a team, but they're, they're not playing nice with each other right now, and they're under a lot of stress for reasons including, you know, wondering whether some of them themselves could be indicted. Well, yeah, it's it's not the best way to work as a lawyer, but it's also <laughs> not it's news, but it's not new. So, you know, Trump's legal team has never exactly been uh, a three musketeers type of situation. Uh, there's always been this infighting, in part because of Trump's tendency to elevate whoever's telling him what he wants to hear, his fondness for complete whack jobs like Sidney Powell, things like that have always made his legal team's tumultuous experience. And yes, it's absolutely a barrier to good strategizing. Um, when you've got multiple people from multiple firms working together, they have to have a good working relationship or else it's just a nightmare. And it's, it's much more expensive, it's much more time consuming, and it's much less effective. So it's that's exactly why smart people don't build their legal team like this. Ken, there's a couple of questions that have come in from listeners on, on matters related closely to this. Uh, here's the first one from Kathy. Hi, this is Kathy from Acton, Massachusetts. And I have a few questions I'd love to hear addressed in the show. First, I can use an explainer on attorney-client privilege. What legal and ethical obligations do lawyers have when they have reason to believe that their client committed or is committing a crime or is lying to them? Uh, so good question. Attorney-client privilege means that attorneys can't reveal and the government can't get confidential communications between a lawyer and their client intended to give legal advice. So that would exclude things set out in public in front of non-lawyers, and it would exclude things that aren't legal advice, but, but that's uh, a very broad category. Now, there are some exceptions. We've heard about the crime fraud exception when a person comes to the lawyer in order to get advice about committing a crime. There's also in some jurisdictions under the jurisdiction's rules of professional responsibility, uh, rules that allow a lawyer to report a client about to commit a crime, but only in very narrow circumstances. Generally, it's only when the lawyer has reason to believe it's going to be a crime that's going to kill someone or do serious bodily injury. You first got to try to talk the client out of it, and you've got to inform them that you're doing it. So it's it's really more like the client's going to go set off a bomb than it is the client's going to go commit tax fraud. And there can also be circumstances when you're representing an entity, a corporation or something like that, where you may have obligations to report one person in the corporation to someone else in the corporation because you're, uh, your client's the entity, right? So if you think the CEO is doing something crooked, you may have to tell that to the board of directors. So those are the circumstances. But other than that, when it's things like improperly retaining top secret documents, no, there wouldn't be either an obligation or a right to report that. There is an obligation not to participate in it, not to facilitate it. Yeah, what happens if a client asks you to do something that either you can't ethically do or that would expose you to legal risk yourself if you did it? I mean, because 
sometimes you're in circumstances where you can't simply terminate the client relationship at will. You might need to explain to a court why you wish to withdraw from a representation, right? So, so what if you need to withdraw for that reason? But presumably, I assume you can't tell the court exactly what the client did that means that you can't represent them anymore. What do you, what do, you do in that situation? So generally, you first you try to convince the client to hire a new attorney and mm-hmm. just substitute out. If that doesn't work, then you do file a motion to withdraw. And there are ways, uh, there's sort of a spectrum of ways you can do it. You can just say very generally that there's been a complete breakdown in the attorney-client relationship that makes it unreasonably difficult to proceed, which are sort of the magic words. Mm -hmm. Um, In some cases, some people, although I think it's very risky, will go as far as to cite the particular part of the rules of professional conduct that say that you're allowed to withdraw if the client's asking you to do something illegal. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably not appropriate to do, uh, but some people have done it. Generally, you can't say, my client wants me to commit a crime, so that's why I want to get out, judge. (laughs) Uh, Some people will offer to tell the judge more in camera, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just with the judge and the attorney away from the other side. Even though it's frequently done, it's not technically legal. It's not an exception to the uh, attorney-client rule that that you can't reveal it just to the judge in chambers. But that's a practice that is not unusual. It's not unusual for the attorney to offer it, or it's not unusual for the judge to agree to it? Both. Okay. Uh, In practice, I've seen a lot. People will say, judge, all I can say is there's been this complete breakdown. If you need to know more, I want to do it in camera. Right. Usually the judge just grants the motion to withdraw. The places where it doesn't happen, uh, Josh, just based on an attorney's representation that they need to get out, is like if it's the the eve of trial or something else where it looks like the, the client is gaming the system. We have an additional question from Kathy. Second, if Donald Trump is ever indicted in any of the cases against him, how can a fair trial be administered given the politically charged and potentially violent circumstances? For example, is it even possible to impanel a jury that doesn't have an opinion on Trump one way or the other? What happens if a jury member seems to be intent on making a decision based on their beliefs rather than the evidence presented in court? Can you compel people to serve on a jury, knowing that they will be subjected to death threats and harassment, no matter which way they decide? So, Ken, I guess I would start with the, the last part of that first, because, I mean, we ask people to serve on juries that would be considerably more hazardous than serving on the Trump jury. I mean, you can be forced to serve on a jury in a trial of a mob boss. So we, we have to have a way of dealing with places where the jurors could come under threat for what they're doing. Realistically, you're never compelling somebody to serve on a jury when they feel their life is in danger. Because if a juror says, basically, I don't think I could be fair and impartial, I'd be terrified about my life, and they won't Mm -hmm. move off that position, the judge isn't going to put them on the jury. Mm -hmm. So uh, realistically, no one's going to get compelled. But yes, all the time, we put people on juries where theoretically there could be a risk to their life. It's common in, you know, gang-type cases. Uh, We sometimes keep the jurors their names and identities confidential. People can go through all sorts of hoops to do that. And, you know, in terms of the question of whether or not it's possible to find a neutral and partial jury, I would just have to comment that we are extremely online and extremely politically obsessed. And most Americans simply aren't. 
So it was probably harder to try to find people who hadn't heard of, uh, you know, the O.J. Simpson accusation of murder than it is to find people who don't have a strong opinion about Trump. A lot of Americans just don't give a shit about politics and keep out of it to the extent they can. And finding people like that is not that terribly difficult. Although isn't the, isn't the O.J. jury a bad example here? I mean, I think I mean, they could have tried O.J. on the west side of L.A. and gotten a, a higher income, wealthier jury that probably would have been a whiter jury that would have been more hostile to O.J. Simpson. It was inconvenient to have to keep going to the west side. They tried him downtown. Isn't jury selection considered one of the one of the reasons that the that prosecutors lost in the O.J. case? It is. And the reasons of why they decided it downtown is a long list and a long debate over that. Uh, but sure, you, the fact that sometimes it doesn't turn out uh, doesn't mean that it can't be done. You know, you have politically sensitive cases, not infrequently, and you find jurors who aren't that informed. This, you might have to have a pretty big jury pool to winnow it down to people who don't have strong opinions or say they don't, but it can be done. It just takes longer. And then I assume for that reason, the the federal government will prefer to try this in a jurisdiction where you're likely to get a more left-leaning jury. I mean, we, by the way, we, we made a mistake on last week's episode. We said that uh, the the Justice Department has a perfect record in January 6 cases, which is not true. They lost at least, at least one bench trial. They haven't lost any jury trials. That we was very kind, Josh. That was my bad. <laughs> and they have, they, they completely lost one bench trial mm-hmm. and they got mixed verdicts in a couple of others. They have not lost a jury trial. Right. Um, I assume it is a useful thing to the federal government that they're trying these cases in the District of Columbia, which is a heavily Democratic jurisdiction where you're going to find very few people who are sympathetic to Donald Trump or to the January 6th rioters or to the idea that the election was was stolen from Donald Trump. If you had to try him in South Florida and, you know, in a, a much more politically divided area like Palm Beach, I assume that you might be a lot more likely to have people who, who are in the jury poll who are going to be fairly sympathetic to the former president's position. Definitely. I mean, if you were prosecutors, you would want to take the case to D.C. And where the correct venue is, is going to depend on the crimes charged and the facts of the case. It's a little more complicated when you have stuff about uh, national security documents and things like that sometimes. But, you know, reams of paper are being written about this right now, Josh, and they're all about how can the Justice Department get it to D.C. if they possibly can versus Florida, which is obviously where Trump wants it. Well, and so how do how do courts make decisions about that sort of thing? Because what I assume would be the crime that would be charged here would have something to do with removing the documents from their location in Washington, D.C. and bringing them to Florida and storing them there, retaining them there in a way that you were not allowed to do. As a layperson, that sounds to me like a crime that was committed in multiple locations, including both the District of Columbia and Florida. Does that mean that the, the government may choose any of those locations to charge it? You know, there's a long answer to this that I'd love to give, but our listeners would start bleeding out the ears. Uh, yeah, it, you, you it love when I on, ask about venue. Yeah, as venue selection. <laughs> gosh, you know, uh, it, it, it's it's just uh, anyone's dream. Yes, it, it could depend on where the crime was committed, and so, for instance, the tougher thing for the government would be cases involving statements were made once Trump went to Florida. 
Uh, so there, you know, the government might be arguing, well, he made the statement from Florida, but he made it to D.C. So you can expect, unless the government just gives up and puts it all in Florida, that if they if they charge in D.C., there will be significant fights over that and requests to change the venue. But wait, um, did Trump make the statements in Florida? These are largely statements made in the summer. He doesn't spend the summer in Florida. He's presumably in New Jersey at Bedminster. If his yeah. attorney makes the statement from Florida based on assurances that he's making telephonically from somewhere farther north. Well, it also depends if there's a conspiracy. If it's part of a conspiracy, then where is the conspiracy venued? So it, it tends to give the government some flexibility, but not complete flexibility. Again, it, we, we, we don't know yet what they're going to charge, and it will turn on that. Have, have you seen the film Bon Cop, Bad Cop? I don't believe I have. It's a fine Canadian crime comedy uh, about a, a murder where the dead body is found hanging on the Welcome to Quebec sign with half the body in Quebec and half the body in Ontario and a bad boy French-Canadian cop who likes to break the rules and a very buttoned-down Toronto cop have to work together to solve the crime. Um, it's one of my favorite movies about venue. <laughs> is it in French? It's in French and English oh, okay. uh, and subtitled in, in both or neither depending on you know how, how bilingual you are. Uh, I'll have to go buy Blockbuster and pick one up. <laughs> That's the end of this week's free episode of Serious Trouble. I want to thank you for listening. I also want to note that there's another half hour of further conversation that is available only to paying subscribers. Ken and I had an interesting talk about Hunter Biden and about these news reports about federal agents saying they believe there's enough information to charge Hunter Biden with crimes related to taxes uh, and to false statements that he may have made on a firearm application. Um, of course, that's federal agents saying this to reporters. Charging decisions are not made by federal agents. They're made by federal prosecutors. And Ken and I had to talk about what it means that that's spilling out into the press ahead of the election. DOJ would not issue a political indictment like that or a politically sensitive indictment like that so close to the election anyway. So uh, uh, we talk a little bit about what might be coming after November in the Hunter Biden case. Uh, we had a conversation about a defamation lawsuit that Donald Trump has brought against CNN uh, and some very interesting conversations about what court that's in and whether maybe it should be in a different court. Um, we also took a question from a listener who wanted to know, can it ever be defamation to call somebody Hitler or to say that they're like Hitler? Because that's what Trump is suing CNN about. But of course, people compare other people to Hitler all the time. There's a whole law about that on the internet, not a law that you can sue over in court. A law is in the sense of a rule, Godwin's law. Uh, and then finally, we also talk about Elon Musk. Uh, and uh, Elon Musk suddenly saying, actually, hey, I will close this deal with Twitter after all. And Twitter saying, he's said that before. We don't want to delay this trial to force him to do that because, you know, he might just be joking again. Uh, and so there has been a brief stay uh, by uh, the, the chancellor, uh, Kathleen McCormick, the chancellor overseeing uh, that lawsuit in Delaware Chancery Court. Uh, but she says if they don't close by October 28th, they have to show up back in her courtroom very promptly. Uh, and we can assume that she will be pretty displeased uh, with Elon Musk if it looks like he was jerking everybody around again. So anyway, those are all things that you can hear in the full episode. That's available to paying subscribers. And if you're not a paying subscriber, you can become one. Go to SeriousTrouble.show and for $6 a month and $60 a year, you get that full episode, every full episode of this show that we put out, more than 40 episodes a year, when you sign up, you'll get a link for a private podcast feed. That means that the, those full episodes, they'll show up automatically and directly in your podcast player. You're not going to have to go to our website every time you listen. You just need to go there, follow the instructions, set that up, and it'll populate right in Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or uh, most of the players where many of you listen. So I encourage you to come sign up, listen to that full episode. Uh, and in any case, we will be back in your players very soon.